Well, this morning, I'd like to introduce sort of where we're going this whole week, because how we read the Bible affects everything. How we understand the Bible is extremely vital to who we are, where we're going, and as a church also, who we are as a church and where we're going. So the, the sort of overall larger title is Living by Every Word of God, and you might wonder what Little Red Riding Hood has to do with that. Don't worry, we will get there. Um, but we need to see at this very first um, period of time, we want to lay a foundation, a very strong foundation for understanding Scripture. And we're also going to look at modern, recent attempts at looking at Scripture differently than we've ever looked at before. And so we'll understand, I hope, by the time we're done this morning, how it is that two Bible-believing Adventists can look at the same Bible passage and come to completely opposite conclusions. Is it that the Bible isn't clear? Can we still rely on a plain reading of the text? Or are we really just deceiving ourselves about that? Well, if you looked at the Michigan memo, um, it did say a little bit about me, some things that not everybody knows about me. I used to believe that the Bible, in fact, was just a work of fiction, really a collection of fairy tales. It had no credibility for me at all when I was in high school because I wasn't brought up in a, a Christian home, had no religious background whatsoever. So it had zero credibility for me. But then someone, I'm very thankful, had the courage to share with me the book, The Great Controversy. And thinking I should know something about the Bible, I accepted it. And it changed my life forever. Forever. My eyes were open to a God of love. I saw a big picture of, bigger than ever I had imagined, of what the plan that God had for us and our world, for me in particular, was like. And through reading The Great Controversy and many other books that summer, including Uriah Smith's Daniel and Revelation, I came to understand that Bible prophecy spells out clearly the history of our world in advance. God says in Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, I am God and there is none like me. I am God and there is none else declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So the Bible was no fairy tale book, but living and active and true. God won my heart. Uh, he, he is so good to us, and he was so good to me, even though in high school I was rejecting him, uh, I didn't believe that God existed. He was trying to draw me, and he loves me. He loves each one of us, wants us to be saved. So I gave my heart to the Lord that summer of 1978, and I was baptized in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And though, although I was accepted to MIT, God had a different plan for my life. 
and I decided that I really hadn't learned anything I really needed to know for eternity in the first 18 years of my life. And so I wanted a Christian education, and being baptized in Northern California, I decided to attend PUC, Pacific Union College, in Angwin, California, just above the Napa Valley. And desiring to know the Bible better, that's why I went there, I soon found myself in the midst of theological controversy that was swirling around a professor there by the name of Desmond Ford. Probably some of you have heard that name. And looking back on that time, as difficult as it was, I am convinced that the crisis that we face today is far more serious. Far more serious. You know, there used to be a time when we as Seventh-day Adventists believed in sola scriptura, the Bible and the Bible only. And when people had questions, we would simply say, well, let's see what the Bible says. Somehow that sounds a little quaint now today, but it shouldn't. Today, some seem to want to make the Bible much more complicated. That We can't just take the Bible as it's written, but we have to um, redefine what we really understand the Bible to be saying. Even our understanding of sola scriptura has to be redefined. Actually, um, redefined, not just refined, but redefined. So, I hope you have your Bibles with you because we're going to look at that quite carefully. First of all, how can our understanding of Scripture and the principle of sola scriptura, you might be wondering, how can that be redefined? Let's explain it this way. Maybe you've asked yourself the question, how is it that two as I said before, Bible-believing Adventists can study the same passage of Scripture and come to completely opposite conclusions. Well, it's because today there's a new way of reading the Bible that's changing how Adventists think and leading them to different conclusions about important questions of faith and practice. Someone here may be saying, well, is it really that important? It's very important. How we read the Bible determines everything else we believe. It's the foundation. If we change how we read the Bible, that is our hermeneutics, how we interpret and study the Bible, it changes everything else. Everything We've actually been told how Adventists will condition themselves to be deceived. It's found in the Great Controversy, page 608. And as I read this, if I make a mistake, please speak up and correct me, okay? Will you do that? As the storm approaches, a few who have professed faith, I wish it said a few, a large class who profess faith in the third angel's message, but who have not been justified, who have not been sanctified, thank you, through obedience to the truth, abandon their position and join the ranks of the opposition. By uniting with the world and partaking of its spirit, 
they have come to view matters in the same light. The same light? Nearly. Not exactly the same as the world. No, no. They've come to view matters in nearly the same light. And when the test is brought, they are what? Prepared. Prepared to choose the easy, popular side. Right now is a time of preparation. What are we preparing for? It goes on. Men of talent and pleasing address who once rejoiced in the truth employ their powers to deceive and mislead souls. They become the most bitter enemies of their former brethren. It was a very sad thing for me to realize at PUC as a young theology student to see many of my friends leave the church, lose their faith, even lead whole churches out with them from what we believe as some of the Adventists. Notice how it happens. We're told in Prophets and Kings, page 187, notice this statement. Those who have yielded what? Step by step to worldly demands, worldly customs, sorry, to worldly demands and conformed to worldly customs will then yield to the powers that be rather than subject themselves to derision, insult, threatened imprisonment, and death. At that time, the gold will be separated from the dross. True godliness will be clearly distinguished from the appearance and tinsel of it. Notice this last sentence. Many a star that we have admired for its brilliance will then go out in darkness. This next statement also, last day events, page 156, very important. We have far more to fear from within. Far more to fear from within than from without. That's a shocking statement to me. How can it be? Within than from without? We've always looked outside. We've looked at, you know, some of the events, and, and we should, the current events going on around us. But let's not forget that there is an enemy who's working within as well as without. I used to wonder how it would be possible for so many Adventists to be deceived. We've had such great light. We understand so much in Scripture. So much of the prophecies have been fulfilled down through history. So I wondered, I asked myself, how could it be possible by changing the way we think about the Bible? That's how. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15, Paul writes, let's look at it. 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. It's actually written at the entrance to the Biblical Research Institute, right on the wall to remind everyone who visits us and to us ourselves. Paul says, Be diligent to prepare your, present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, rightly interpreting 
the word of truth. Lest we think that this just applies to ministers like Timothy, notice what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. 1 Peter 3, 15. I think probably most of us know it. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always, what? To give an answer to every man that asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So we all need to study the Bible for ourselves. Why? Great Conversy, page 598. It is not enough to have good intentions. It is not enough to do what a man thinks is right or what the minister tells him is right. His soul's salvation is at stake and he should search the scriptures for himself. Don't trust what I say. Go to the Bible. Prove it for yourselves. The Bible is clear. Great Controversy, page 593, 594. By the way, this, these two quotations come from a very important chapter. If you haven't read it recently or if you've never read it, I urge you to read it. The Scripture's a safeguard. The Scripture's a safeguard. Notice, none but those who have fortified the mind with what? The truths of the Bible will stand through the last great conflict. One day, Jesus was approached by a lawyer, meaning, you know, someone who is expert in the interpretation of the scriptures. And he was asked a question. It's found in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 25. A very important question. Luke 10, verse 25. It says, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now notice that Jesus doesn't immediately answer the question. What does he do? He, he asks the question back. He says, what is written, verse 26, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Now that's what the New King James Version says. I don't really like that translation. It makes it sound like you know, the lawyer's reading might be one reading, another acceptable reading might be what you read it to mean or what I read it to mean. That's not what the text says. Yes, Jesus says, it is written. What is written in the law? So it's clear that he doesn't just want the man's own opinion. Really, the King James Version, how readest thou, it captures the essence of the Greek text. Jesus wants to know what the man's understanding of the Scriptures is, testing his knowledge of what the Scriptures actually say. So notice verse 28, after, of course, the lawyer answers and quotes the Scriptures, loving the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. What does Jesus say? You have answered... Right. You've answered rightly. Exactly. Now, some would insist, though, that there are many right answers. 
not just one right answer to Jesus' question. They say we all come to the Bible with our own filters. And what we, we read them with different glasses and we come out with different conclusions. Well, what might that look like? To help answer that question, I've enlisted the help of a well-known childhood figure, Little Red Riding Hood. Now, how many of us know the story of Little Red Riding Hood? Now, how many of you have read it recently? No hands. Within 10 years ago? I don't see maybe one hand. Okay, to your children, right? <laughs> okay, so we're going to read the story, but there's a, a very important point here, so bear with me. One day, Little Red Riding Hood's mother said to her, take this basket of goodies to your grandmother's cottage, but don't talk to strangers along the way. Promising not to, Little Red Riding Hood skipped off. On her way, she met the big bad wolf who asked, Where are you going, little girl? To my grandma's, Mr. Wolf, she answered. The big bad wolf then ran to her grandmother's cottage much before Little Red Riding Hood and knocked on the door. When grandma opened the door, he locked her up in the cupboard. The wicked wolf then wore grandma's clothes and lay on her bed waiting for Little Red Riding Hood. When Little Red Riding Hood reached the cottage, she entered and went to Grandma's bedside. My, what big eyes you have, Grandma, she said in surprise. All the better to see you with, my dear, replied the wolf. My, what big ears you have, Grandma, said Little Red Riding Hood. All the better to hear you with, my dear, said the wolf. What big teeth you have, Grandma. All the better to eat you with, growled the wolf, pouncing on her. Little Red Riding Hood screamed, and the woodcutters in the forest came running to the cottage. They beat the big bad wolf and rescued Grandma from the cupboard. Grandma hugged Little Red Riding Hood with joy. The big bad wolf ran away, never to be seen again. Little Red Riding Hood had learned her lesson and never spoke to strangers ever again. Okay, now think, is, is this story clear? Is, is the meaning, what it means clear to you? What's the main lesson of the story? Don't talk to strangers. Good. Okay, don't talk to strangers. That's right. So, I'm going to, you know, look at now what the K-12 through curriculum called Perspectives for a Diverse America says about this story. It talks about what it calls the dominant reading of the story. Okay? Dominant reading. First, children should obey their parents. It's dangerous to talk to strangers. Females are vulnerable, but can rely on men to protect them. Males are rescuers. And the bottom line of the story, according to the dominant reading, according to this curriculum, is males are stronger than females and better able to protect themselves and others. Now, is that what you got out of the story? 
that's the dominant reading. That's apparently what we're all supposed to think as we read that story. But that's not the only way to read this story. Now let's look at this story through what they call, this curriculum calls, a gender lens. Females are stereotypes of what women should be. The mother's a caregiver. Little Red Riding Hood is a dutiful daughter. Grandma, well, she's a helpless victim. Now there are male stereotypes too. The wolf is a predator who stalks the child. The woodcutter is a hero and rescuer. So the bottom line of this story, women are seen as people who should obey instructions and as prizes who can be taken by force. Gender lens reading. But now that's not the only way we can read this story of Little Red Riding Hood. Let's try reading it, according again to the same curriculum for a diverse America, through a class lens reading of the story. So with this, these glasses on, Little Red Riding Hood, Grandma and Mother own property and enjoy life. Wolf, poor wolf, is homeless and hungry. And because of the women's unwillingness to share, Wolf tries to take what he needs to survive. Little Red Riding Hood. For breaking the rules of ownership which favor the rich, Wolf is brutally murdered by a member of the working class, the woodcutter, who has been tricked to think that he is on the same side as the wealthy. What's the bottom line of the story according to the class lens reading? Parental authority is reinforced to instill attitudes of submission and help preserve the structure of society. Now, perhaps you find amusing this attempt to find different ways to read the story of Little Red Riding Hood, but far more troubling is that Today, these same methods are being used in order to find different ways of reading the Bible. Can we really use so many different lenses to read the Bible? Or is the Bible to use its lens on us? After all, who determines the meaning of what is here? Is it the text or is it the reader of the text? Who, who determines the meaning? Whose word is it? So who should determine the meaning of this text? Not the reader. Not the reader. I'm going to now look at what we can call the reader critical method, which basically places the reader in the position of over the scriptures as determining its meaning. And it can be determined to mean whatever the reader says it means, which of course sets the reader up as supreme over the text. What is the impact of this kind of method on biblical interpretation? It's severe because it disconnects the Bible completely from history. It doesn't matter what happened. What matters is how I read the text. 
Secondly, contradictory interpretations are fine. Why? Because your reading is just as good as my reading, and neither reading is supreme. Third, it enables agenda-driven interpretations. Agenda-driven interpretations. The class lens reading, that's just a Marxist reading of the text. The gender lens reading, that's, that's an, an, well, that's evolutionist, okay? That's another reading. We can read the story of creation as mainly a story of evolution. And the gender lens reading, that's simply another way of talking about a feminist reading of the text. So that enables the reader to place his agenda on the text. It doesn't come out of the text. It's placed on top of the text by whoever is reading it. That's the point. Well, we may wonder, how is it that distorted views of the Bible come into existence? Once again, this K-12 curriculum from Perspectives for a Diverse America can help us. They talk about what is known as reading against the grain of the text. Reading against the grain. The dominant reading is, you know, the, that kind of goes along with what the text seems to say. Um, so you analyze first that dominant reading. Then you look at the underlying beliefs that are embedded in that reading of the text. And third... This dominant reading is then challenged by what's called a resistant reading. A resistant reading. Now, what does that look like? No, notice this quotation it's from the same curriculum. When students read against the grain, they learn to push back against the foregrounding and privileging of a dominant point of view. Often, heterosexual, non-disabled, Christian, white, or male, unquote. They learn to push back against the foregrounding and privileging of a dominant point of view. Well, let's see how this method has been applied to other Bible texts, shall we? For example, in Romans chapter 1. Now, most of us would probably think that this is quite clear, that Paul is about as clear here as he can be anywhere. And in fact, many, even who don't agree with what Paul writes here, admit that he's pretty clear about what he says because it happens to be the only clear condemnation, not only of male homosexuality, but of female lesbianism in Scripture. And so, when you read, for example, verses uh, 26 and 27, for this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Is there anything unclear about that? Well, according to some, 
Homosexuality in this passage is condemned only in connection with idolatry. Because after all, verse 23 talks about changing the image of the corruptible incorruptible God into an image like corruptible man. And verse 25 talks about worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. So as long as homosexuality is not connected with any form of idolatry, that's not a problem. Or another possibility that Paul is actually only condemning homosexuality with children, an adult with a child. But it's interesting that even that was not forbidden by Roman law. So it wasn't necessarily considered wrong in the surrounding society and culture. A third possibility, if we're talking about sexual relations that are done unnaturally, what Paul talks about as against nature, well, yes, if I'm a heterosexual, it's wrong for me to have a homosexual relationship because that's against my nature. But if I'm a homosexual, if I was made that way, it would be wrong for me to have heterosexual relations. See, I need to have same-sex relations. See how that works? Or another possibility, maybe coercion is being employed and Paul is condemning forced sexual relations. In any of these cases, a loving, consensual same-sex relationship is not condemned. Not condemned. You see how it's easy? We can reread the Bible, really rewrite the Bible to say what we want it to say. Well, what about transgenderism? Now, you would probably say, come on, there's nothing in the Bible about transgenderism, right? Well, let's not be so sure. Shortly before I prepared this presentation for the, and gave it to the pastors in January, an issue of the Christian century came across my desk called Being Trans. And it had testimonies or experiences of what transgender individuals had gone through in their churches, not all of which was good. Part of me, one said, is welcome in the church, and part is not. Another, my faith gives me the freedom to refuse assimilation. A third one said, I learned to thank God for my being whatever I am. Well, you say, but come on, where in Scripture might this possibly be okay? Well, let's look at Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verses 25 to 34. Now, we know the story, the woman with a flow of blood, she tries to make her way through the crowd to touch, even if possible, just the hem of Christ's garment, and she believes she'll be healed, right? And she, in fact, does touch garment, and she is healed. So, this hemorrhaging woman, this is the dominant reading now. Let's look at what the dominant reading would say. The hemorrhaging woman, though categorized as unclean by the law, touches the hem of Jesus' garment and is healed. Jesus recognizes that power has gone out from him to heal and asks, who touched me? 
Finally, the woman confesses, and Jesus assures her that her faith has saved her and to go in peace. Okay, that's the dominant, straightforward reading of the text. How might it be read by a transgender through a trans lens? By a transgender person? Let's, let's find out. The woman approaching Jesus fits the category of feminine, that is, weak, inferior, with a leaking, porous body. In touching Jesus, something unexpected happens. Power leaked out of Jesus to heal her. So, quote, I'm quoting, for Jesus' body to begin leaking is a blatantly feminizing act, unquote. And later goes on the article to point out that in this reading, the female exerts power over the male. And Jesus aligns his body with hers. Well, it should not be surprising that these are not done in a vacuum, these different readings of Scripture. After all, we live in a culture and a society where secularism is trying to change how we think about issues. So over the past number of decades, we've seen it go from feminism and driving a feminist agenda to gay and lesbian rights, and now finally to transgender rights and beyond. That is our secular society in which we live. Now let's, let's think about what it means for a plain reading of the Bible. If we would construct a reading against the grain, that is, against the plain reading of the text, that's the first step. We first of all want to find a different way of reading the text that is really resisting, really opposing a plain reading of the text. Secondly, the next step, we share people's stories, their experiences, their testimonies, and some of the terrible experiences. And I want, don't want to minimize that in whatsoever. Some people have suffered some very terrible things. But that doesn't change what the Bible says. We love them. We want to you know, embrace them as Jesus would and lead them to, to healing and wholeness. But it doesn't change Scripture. So construct a reading against the grain. Two, share people's stories, which then becomes, you know, an emotional exercise in sympathy and wanting to help. Three, then we agree to disagree. We may not all see things exactly the same way. And step four, the result, as the Bible is neutralized, that doesn't anymore speak to this issue. And we've seen that over and over again, haven't we? Haven't we seen that over and over again with these various agendas being driven? Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, 
page 711. Let the word of God stand just as it is. Let not human wisdom presume to lessen the force of one statement of the scriptures. The solemn denunciation in the Revelation, Revelation she was referring to 22, 18, 19, where we shouldn't add to or take away anything from Scripture. The solemn denunciation in the Revelation should warn us against taking such ground. Well, what, what do we mean by a plain reading of the Bible? Is it biblical? Let's look at Proverbs chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. Proverbs 8, 8 and 9. God is speaking. Wisdom really is speaking, but it's referring to the wisdom of God, God's words. All the words of my mouth are with righteousness. Nothing crooked or perverse is in them. Notice verse 9. They are all what? Plain. Plain. To him who understands. Notice it's not plain to everybody. They are all plain to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. How do we find knowledge? Where do we find it? What did Jesus say? Matthew 7, verse 7. Seek and you will find. Seek and you will find. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6. Proverbs chapter 30. Again, talking about God's word. Every word of God is pure. Every word is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not what? Add. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Finally, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. 2 Timothy, we sometimes skip to verse 16, but notice what Paul says to Timothy in cha- verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And he's not speaking just about learning from Paul here. Being assured of the things you have learned, knowing from whom you have learned them. That's God. And that from childhood, from childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, if Timothy knew the Scriptures from childhood, Could he understand them? Are they plain? Are they clear? If a child can understand, surely all of us can understand. So what do we mean by a plain reading of the Bible? Well, it's helpful, first of all, to think about what it does not mean. It does not mean taking verses out of context. No, we look at the passage in context. It does not mean ignoring the historical context either. We, we learn from the Bible what the surrounding history and events were that relate to the text. It doesn't mean ignoring culture. 
Nor does it mean that we must agree on every single detail. It does not mean that. It doesn't mean that we stop thinking. After all, what did God say to us? Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. We know it very well. Come now and let us reason together. That's right. Come and let us reason together. Isaiah 1, verse 18. And notice this statement from the Spirit of Prophecy. God desires man to exercise his reasoning powers. And the study of the Bible will strengthen and elevate the mind as no other study can do. Do you want to be more, you know, more wiser, more intelligent? You want a clearer mind? Read the Bible. Study the Bible. That's what we're told. Yet, the statement goes on, yet we are to beware of deifying reason, which is subject to the weakness and infirmity of humanity. A sense of the power a sense of the power and wisdom of God and of our inability to comprehend his greatness should inspire us with humility. And we should open his word as we would enter his presence with holy awe. When we come to the Bible, reason must acknowledge an authority superior to itself and heart and intellect must bow to the great I am. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 703. Well, I find it interesting as we think about what the plain reading of the Bible does mean. Ellen White, she quotes from the rules of interpretation that William Miller used, and she recommends these rules for us. And I won't quote all of them, but the first four of them are very important for us to notice. Number one, every word... Every word must have its proper bearing on the subject presented in the Bible. Two, all Scripture is necessary and may be understood by diligent application and study. Three, nothing is revealed in Scripture, nothing revealed in Scripture can or will be hid from those who ask in faith, not wavering. And number four, to understand doctrine, to understand doctrine, bring all the scriptures together on the subject you wish to know. How many scriptures? All the scriptures together on the subject you wish to know. Then let what? Every word have its proper influence and, and notice this promise, it's an amazing promise, and if you can form your theory without a contradiction, what? You cannot be in error. You cannot be in error. The plain reading of the Bible. Okay, so, now, Notice what she goes on to say. I'm still quoting from this passage. The above, meaning those above rules, I've skipped some of them, but the first four are there. The above is a portion of these rules. And in our study of the Bible, she says, we shall all do well to heed 
the principles set forth. Genuine faith, still quoting, genuine faith is founded where? On the scriptures. Why is that? Faith comes by what? Hearing. hearing. And hearing by word of God. So if we attack how we understand scripture, what are we really attacking? Our faith and our salvation, because it's through faith that we are saved. Genuine faith is founded on the scriptures. But Satan uses so many devices to rest the scriptures and bring in error that great care is needed if one would know what they really do teach. It is one of the great delusions of this time to dwell much on feeling and to, like, and to claim honesty while ignoring the plain utterances of the word of God because that word does not coincide with feeling. She also gives many other helpful um, recommendations as to how to understand the Bible. Notice this very clear and important statement from the Great Controversy, page 598. Again, from that chapter, the Scriptures, a safeguard. The language of the Bible should be explained according to what? It's obvious meaning. Does the Bible have an obvious meaning? Yes. Unless a symbol or figure is employed. Notice this, this statement struck me from page 268 of the Great Controversy. All who exalt their own opinions above divine revelation, all who would change the plain meaning of Scripture to suit their own convenience or for what? The sake of conforming to the world are taking upon themselves a fearful responsibility. Now, you say, but what about, the, we all know they exist. What about the problem texts in the Bible? There are problem texts, aren't there? Now, no one is going to deny that there are some passages that are more clear than others. And there are passages that, if read alone, might give a different meaning than we might think. So when a text seems to contradict other passages, what do we do? Jesus, we won't take the time to look up the passage, but in Luke 24, when the disciples on the road to Emmaus were perplexed and confused, he, he said, uh, it says that he, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So allow the many clear passages to explain the one or two unclear texts. Okay, another type of problem text is we don't like what the text says. We don't like what the text says. We'll talk more about some of those texts, you know, tomorrow and Wednesday and Thursday, so um, you'll have to wait for that. But Jesus said, if any man is willing to do his will, what? He shall know the doctrine, whether I speak myself or whether it's from God. John 7, 17. So pray for a willingness to accept what God says, whatever God says, and power to do it. 
A third type of problem text, it's unclear how to do it, or it's unclear what it means. In that case, we have many uh, Bible passages by way of encouragement. Of course, James chapter 1, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Proverbs 3, do not lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He shall direct your paths. Psalm 119, 105, thy word is what? A lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Pray for wisdom and divine guidance. Well, I want to just now take a moment, a brief, just a, a moment, to introduce to you, if you've not heard of it before, a very important document. We're not going to take time to look at it today, but I want you to be aware of it. It is called the Methods of Bible Study document. It was produced by the Biblical Research Institute in the 1980s in the wake of the crisis with Desmond Ford with wide input from around the world church. It was approved by the Annual Council of the General Conference Executive Committee on October 12, 1986 in Rio de Janeiro, and it's the only official statement of the Seventh-day Adventist Church on methods of biblical interpretation or hermeneutics. Now, this document consists of five parts. It has a preamble, which is very important. I'll quote from it in a moment. Then it gives presuppositions that arise from the Bible itself. We don't come to the Bible with our own preconceived ideas, but we get our ideas about the Bible from what the Bible says about itself. That's very important. Number three, then it lays out some principles for interpretation. And four is a very practical step-by-step -step guide for how to study the Bible. And then finally, five, there is a conclusion. So from the preamble, note what it says. Even a modified use of this, that is the historical critical method, and let me just mention, you know how the reader critical method puts the reader in charge of what the text means? Well, the historical critical method takes history and takes history as the control or the authority for what the text means. That's the only difference. It's just replacing the authority of history for the authority of the reader over the text to change or, or reread what the text really says. Even a modified use of this method that what? Retains the principle of criticism which subordinates the Bible to human reason is unacceptable to Adventists. Unacceptable to Adventists. I wanted to actually go through a very practical section. Maybe I'll just go through it very quickly. Um, you know, the Methods of Bible Study says, select a Bible version for studying that is faithful to the meaning contained in the languages which the Bible was originally written in. So how do you find a Bible translation like that? Well, there are three main kinds of Bible translations. There's the literal equivalence, a word-for-word -word translation, and those examples are uh, New King James Version, the New American Standard Bible, and the English Standard Version. A second kind is what we call dynamic equivalence. The New Revised Standard Version, the New International Version, and the New American Bible are examples of that. They don't translate it word for word. They take a phrase and they 
put it in an English way that is what they think the best uh, meaning of the text. But when they do that, think about it. They're telling you what they think the meaning is. They're no longer letting the words of the Bible uh, translate word for word so we decide what it means. They're telling you what it means. Third, a paraphrase takes that even further and simply abandons any connection with the actual words of the text and simply puts it in new language. Living Bible and the message are examples of that. Now, I took the word doctrine. I was curious to know how the word doctrine in the New Testament is, um, how many times it occurs in each of these kinds of translations. So, for literal versions of the Bible, notice you have the year when the, the present King James Version, even though it was 1611, was translated. It's been updated several times, and the one we generally use was updated last in 1769. Uh, the word doctrine occurs 56 times. In the New King, New King James Version, 42 times. In the New American Standard Bible, 1995, more recent edition of it, 14 times. And in the English Standard Version, 13 times. What about over time? Notice, in the Revised Standard Version, which was more literal, actually, 17 times. Later, the New Revised Standard Version is now only eight times the word doctrine appears. What about the New International Version? Some people aren't aware it has, that it's been updated, but it was updated in 2011. The older version, seven times it occurs, the word doctrine. In the new edition, only six times. In daily study, the verse-by-verse -verse method is the most helpful. Let the student take one verse, this is from the Spirit of Prophecy, by the way, and concentrate the mind on ascertaining the thought that God has put into that verse for him. And then dwell upon the thought until it becomes his own. One passage thus studied until its significance is clear is of more value than the perusal of many chapters with no definite purpose in view and no positive instruction gained. Education, page 189. Uh, let's just skip, skip over some of these next slides, come to the conclusion. The Bible and the Bible only is to be our watchword, she says. God's words, remember the words of Proverbs 8, are all plain to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. And finally, I came across this statement this morning, very timely one. The messengers of Christ in the Old Testament as much as the apostles voiced his messages in the New Testament, and there is no contradiction between their teachings. No contradiction. But Satan has ever worked and is still working with all deceivableness of unrighteousness to make the word of God of none effect. He seeks to make mysterious that which is simple and plain. Selected Messages, Book 1, page 345. So I want to leave you with this passage we opened with. Do you believe it? If you believe this passage, raise your hand. 
whatever things, whatever things were written before, were written for our learning, that through patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. I think there's a few minutes left, is there, for questions? Yes? Any questions? We have, hopefully, yes, there's one over here, my far right. They're often recording these sessions, right? They're recording these, these sessions. Do you yes. have any materials, book form of, the, of this material, book form of the ABC? Yeah, the session's being recorded, I think. Yeah. And do you have any materials in book form? In book uh, form? It's not in book form. No. Sorry. But um, the methods of Bible study that I've referred to, we will give it to you in written form. So um, uh, you'll have that as a further study. Yes. Yes, Dr. Walleen, thank you very much for your presentation. I know I'm very grateful for the work that the BRI does, and uh, I'm glad to see their sophisticated understanding of the various new ways of reading. And we have to be able to respond to this, and I very much appreciate the time and work you've put into it, and I think it's very helpful. I was just wanting to ask you a question about the plain reading. Um, it's interesting, I've searched Ellen White and I can't find her ever mentioning the plain reading of scripture, but she does say the plain meaning of scripture. And I'm just wondering if you view those two as entirely synonymous or is there some way in which the plain reading might be a little different than the plain meaning? And the reason I ask this is because she does say that some parts of scripture can be understood as they plainly read, where other parts you have to dig beneath the surface and, and, and do more interpretation. And I'm just wondering if maybe making a distinction between plain reading and plain meaning might be helpful, or maybe not. I just wanted to see what you thought about it. Well, thank you for that question. I don't think there's any difference between the plain meaning of the text and the plain reading of the text if, if we take the text as it is. She says we should take the Bible just as it is. And if we do that, if we read the text as it says, uh, with a, a careful translation of the Bible, then we can read it and understand it. I, I did say that there were several categories of texts that are an exception to that. And Ellen White herself, as I quoted in The Great Controversy, refers to those unless there's a symbol or figure employed. So we, we, need to, uh, we need to read the Bible with that awareness. And so maybe if there's any distinction at all, it's simply with regard to reading the Bible with that broader understanding that um, there are some passages that were not meant to be taken literally. Okay, there's a question over here. Okay, thanks. I'm told, by the way, as uh, coming to the microphone, that um, there are copies of a book that my wife and I wrote that will deal much more in detail with the passages of Scripture that we will be looking at this week more than what we have time for in our meetings 
from morning to morning. So uh, if you're interested, they are available at the back table. Okay, please. How does the Andrews Study Bible match up with some of the versions you were talking about? Well, the Andrews Study Bible is uh, based on the New King James Version. That's the text that's in the Bible. And that's a very good translation, modern translation, word for word, um, carefully done. Um, it's the one that I'm using, actually, for these presentations. In fact, the, the Andrews Study Bible itself is the version I have here um, with its notes. And overall, you'll find I think the notes are very helpful. How was the Andrews Study Bible written? Um, who were the authors? Uh, in the beginning uh, pages of the uh, Andrews Study Bible, you'll find a list of contributors. And so it went through a process of, of people writing notes um, to the Bible, and then those were edited, and they were also sent to the Biblical Research Institute. Um, just looking now um, for that list. But anyway, it's in the early pages. Um, it lists the contributors, and uh, the Biblical Research Institute also was uh, consulted in connection with it. So um, we, we looked at the notes, and we did our best to make sure that they were helpful in understanding Scripture. Maybe we have time for one or two more. I see one hand here in the back. I don't want to keep you too much because I know lunch is, uh, is on the way. <laughs> so uh, maybe this will make this our last question. Go ahead. I have a question about the NLT. About? The NLT, New Living Translation. Bible. Oh, the New Living Translation. Well, this is a dynamic translation. I think a little more even dynamic uh, or flexible in its wording than uh, the New International Version. So I would put that also in the second category. Uh, basically, the translator has taken it upon himself or herself uh, to indicate what the best meaning of the text is. So in the case where a text could mean one thing or it could mean something else, they choose for you. And that's why it sounds clearer. They remove almost all ambiguity from the text. So a classic example of this is Revelation 12, verse 17, where it talks about the testimony of Jesus. In Greek, that could mean a testimony about Jesus, or it could mean Jesus' testimony to us through his prophets. And if you study the use of that phrase in the book of Revelation, it's clear that testimony of Jesus means Jesus' testimony through his prophets to us. That's the meaning of 1217. But not every version. You look at that in other versions, you'll see they, it often is translated our witness or testimony about Jesus. Well, thank you for your questions. Let's bow our heads for prayer as we close. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word of truth. We know that uh, on our own, with our unaided reason, we often may come to wrong conclusions. But we thank you that uh, you've promised wisdom to everyone who asks. And if we are asked in faith, that you will give us wisdom. If we seek, we'll find. If we knock, 
the door will be open. So we would ask that as we go through your word day by day, that you'll continue to give us a clearer, brighter, better understanding of what your text says and the ability to share it effectively with others. Go with us now, we pray, throughout this day. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.